Amen. Welcome, Life Church. You can be seated. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad you're here with us today. If we don't know one another, my name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm glad to welcome you to worship with us. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I hope you do, or a way to get that in front of you, we are going to be in Philippians chapter 1, jumping in in verse 9 here in just a couple of moments. While you find that, um, I'm going to tell you about my friend Holly Ardoin. Um, Holly turned 28 this year, so she's still a young woman, and she and her husband Jordan live in the mighty, thriving metropolis of Abilene, Texas. If you've never been to Abilene, Texas, you can picture kind of a barren, desolate wasteland surrounded by another barren, desolate wasteland, and then there's this tiny city right in the middle of that. There's not a lot happening outside of or near Abilene, but Abilene is there. Um, Holly in Abilene is an oral surgeon, so she spent five years studying uh, to be an oral surgeon at the University of Texas Health Science Center, which is in San Antonio, and just a couple of years ago, she and Jordan moved to Abilene, where she practices dental surgery, whatever that happens to look like. And um, Holly, aside from, you know, the hecticness of med school and all the stuff that went into that, she has lived a pretty straightforward and simple life. She and Jordan both uh, loved to snow ski. Um, In fact, it was on the ski slopes that Jordan proposed to her back in the day before they were married around 2014. Um, When they're not skiing, when it's not ski season, Holly and Jordan love to hang out with their friends at local lakes. Uh, They both love to hunt, although um, there's not going to be a lot of hunting in Holly's near-term future because just a few weeks ago on September 3rd at 4.48 p.m., Holly and Jordan welcomed their first child into the world when Scout Leah Ardoin was born. born. Uh, thankfully, everyone is healthy and happy. Mom's good. Baby's good. In fact, if you were to ask Holly today, she would tell you that the Lord made her and wired her to be a mom and that there's nothing that gives her more joy in all of her life than being a mom to little Scout. And so she's doing great. Baby's doing great. And we can all praise God for that. Now, I'm telling you about Holly Ardoin this morning because if I confess, I have absolutely no idea who Holly Ardoin is. She and I have been friends, friends, on Facebook since 2008, but if my life were on the line right now, I could, I could make no guess as to how she and I met each other, became friends, whatever happened to produce that result of Facebook's algorithm, right? Like everything that I just told you about Holly, I learned doing about five minutes of internet research this week because I don't know her. I don't know her at all. I have no idea who this girl is. I know some facts about her, right? The things that I could conclude from my Facebook stalking for a few moments. But aside from that, I know nothing about this person. I certainly don't claim to know this person. But my point in telling you about her is to illustrate that very important difference between knowing a few things about an individual, between knowing a few facts about an individual, and having a real, living, breathing relationship with an individual. If I were to ask you, what is the real, concrete evidence that you have a living, breathing relationship with God, what would you say? Right, we've just teased out the fact that there's a difference between knowing some things about someone and actually knowing someone. 
And so knowing some things about God, that's not enough. Even the demons know some things about God and even believe those things about God, James chapter 1 tells us. And so what's the real concrete evidence? What's the proof that you have a living, breathing relationship with the king of heaven, with the God of the universe? The late, great British theologian, J.I. Packer, in his famous and incredible book, Knowing God, he said that the surest sign that we have a relationship with God is the way we pray. Not the fact that we pray, but the way that we pray. And so let me just read a bit of this to you. This is what Packer says. He says, people who know their God are before anything else people who pray. And the first point where their zeal and energy for God's glory come to expression is in their prayers. And so in other words, the the most basic evidence of the fact that we truly know God, not just know some things about him, but truly know God, is the fact that we pray to him. But it's even the fact that we pray with, with zeal and energy for his glory. It's not merely enough to say, thanks for my meal, or, you know, please bless me as I jump into this test, or this interview, or whatever it is that's going on. It's that your prayer is driven by the things that God cares most about. Listen to Packer as he continues. He says, The invariable fruit of true knowledge of God is energy to pray for God's cause. By this we may test ourselves. If there is in us little energy for prayer and little consequent practice of it, this is a sure sign that as yet we scarcely know our God. And so what Packer is saying is that our prayers prove that we truly believe what we profess to believe. The Bible tells us that that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. We can profess to believe that. But we'll prove that we believe that when we pray to God as if he is the creator and sustainer of all things. God's word says, these are... This is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. He says that it's in God that we live and move and have our being. And we can profess that. But we'll prove that we truly believe it when we pray as if God is holding all things together at every single moment. But notice, again, Packer's not just saying that, that prayer is the proof that we know God. It's the fact that we pray with energy for God's cause. And so we're praying not just a thank you for whatever God has done for us in the day, but we're praying out of conviction that we care most about what God cares most about. We're praying most about the things that are very important to God, most important to God. It's in this way, Packer says, that our prayers prove that the God that we profess to know is a God we actually have a living, breathing relationship with. Now this is the third week in our series here in the letter to the Philippians as we've walked through the opening verses of chapter 1. We've seen Paul express gratitude and thanksgiving for the Philippian church. We've seen him rejoice in his relationships with the Philippian believers. And now as we get to chapter 1 verse 9, we find Paul praying for the Philippian church. Really what he's doing is he's summarizing his prayers. He's giving the Philippians the Cliff Notes version of what he has been praying for them in verses 9 through 11. 
And as we look at these verses, this prayer of Paul this morning, I mean, absolutely we'll see the real concrete evidence that the Apostle Paul knows the Lord. I don't think we were uncertain about that. But we'll also find in this short and powerful prayer a model. It's the model of the kind of prayer that a pastor should pray for his flock. It's the model of the kind of prayer that a husband should pray for his wife or a wife should pray for her husband. It's a model of the kind of prayer that we should pray for our children or grandchildren or future children or future grandchildren. And it's a model of the kind of prayer that we should pray for one another in the family of God as members of a local church. And so before we look at this prayer this morning, I wanted to pray for us, asking God both to shape us and to shape the way we pray through this prayer of the Apostle Paul this morning. So let's pray together. God, I pray that you would help us see very clearly the difference between knowing some facts about you and even agreeing with those facts and having a real, living, breathing relationship with you. And I pray that the fruit of that real, living, breathing relationship in each of our lives would be not just that we pray, but that we pray with conviction about the things that matter most to you. I pray that we would pray with hearts that are aligned with your heart. I pray that we would pray prayers that bring you honor and glory because they, they live and breathe for the things that you live and breathe for. And so help us, Lord, as we think about this prayer of Paul and as we think about the ways that we pray and the, the way that we relate to you through prayer. Lord, may you spur us to love you more fully and to live for you more deeply. Give us eyes to see and ears to, to hear this morning as we behold you and your glory in this passage, God. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right, let's begin in chapter 1, verse 9, looking at Paul's prayer for the Philippians. We're just going to go a few words at a time this morning and and kind of roll around in this prayer that Paul has prayed for the Philippians. He begins this way, verse 9, he says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. So if we just stop right there, we can pretty quickly understand what Paul is beseeching here, what he's asking for from the Lord. He's asking that the Philippians would grow in their love, that they would have abundant love or abounding love. And not just that they would have abundant love, but that they would have even more and more of it. And so he's praying for this ever-growing, ever-increasing kind of love that the Philippians would have it. Now it's significant that Paul does not stipulate who he wants the Philippians to love, right? He doesn't say, I pray that you would have abundant love for God. He doesn't say, I pray that you would have abundant love for one another. He doesn't say, I pray that you would have abundant love for lost people in your city or even for the nations. And the reason he doesn't specify that is because really he intends the answer to be all of the above. Paul wants the Philippians' love for God and for all other people to be abundant. He wants it to be increasing. And so he doesn't specify who, in fact, the Philippians are to love so that they 
understand their love is to be growing for everyone. Now, we should recognize the fact that the way the Bible explains love to us, our love for other people, it always emerges from our love for God. And so when Paul prays that the Philippians' love would be increasing, he starts in his mind in the theology of the New Testament with love for God. Because as our love for God vertically increases, then so too our love for others horizontally will increase, the Bible teaches us. This is 1 John chapter 5 Verse 1, where the writer of Johnny says, Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And so if we have genuine, true love for God, that's going to overflow into love for other people. And so Paul's vision here is that our love for God would be like a geyser springing up to him, but then it would overflow into the lives of other people in our lives. And so our vertical love for God necessarily translates to horizontal love for other people. That's the kind of love that Paul wants to be increasing among the Philippians. The kind of love that he wants to be abounding among the Philippians more and more and more. But as we keep reading the rest of verse 9, we realize pretty quickly that this love, it's not this like mushy, vague, sentimental, undefined kind of love. No, there's some specificity to it. Because look at what he says in the second part of verse 9. He says, It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. And so, in other words, the expression of this abounding love that is to be in the Philippians' lives for God and for other people, the way that they, they love people, the way that love goes to work or is put in action, it's with knowledge and with all discernment. How would that work? Like, what's the relationship between knowledge and love? How do we love somebody with knowledge? Now, in our culture, love, that word, it has come to be kind of a junk drawer concept. Right? You understand the, the principle of a junk drawer, right? You, unless you're channeling your inner Marie Kondo, you have a junk drawer. I have a junk drawer. I went and you know, took an inventory of its contents this week. Um, in our junk drawer, there were a few you know, loose, random batteries. Who knows if they have charge in them or not? We don't care. They're just there in the junk drawer. Several varieties of tape are in our junk drawer. Um, some broken pencils, um, a few bottles of hand sanitizer, and approximately 9,000 old phone chargers that charge devices we don't own anymore. That's, that's what's in our junk drawer. I don't know what's in your junk drawer, but you, you probably have one, right? The principle of a junk drawer is simple. It's convenient, it's easy, and it serves you because it does for you whatever you want it to do, right? When you want to hide stuff, it goes in the junk drawer. When you don't want to think about something anymore, it goes in the junk drawer. The junk drawer exists to make your life easier. And in our culture, that's really how we've come to think about and understand the idea of love. Like we think of love as something that makes our lives more convenient. Love means people are serving us. Love means people are helping us have whatever life we really want to have. Love means whatever we want it to mean, so long as it's easy and convenient and makes life work the way that we want it to work. Now, of course, like that's not the Bible's vision of love at all. And we see that because, because Paul is equating love with knowledge. 
right, he's saying the way that the Philippians are to express their love is through knowledge. And so the question we have to wrestle with is, how do knowing and loving fit together? Like, how do those ideas relate to one another at all? In the Bible, the idea of knowing, it very rarely pertains to or speaks to knowing information. I'm sure someone can find an example where the Bible's talking about knowing some facts. But far more frequently, when the Bible speaks about knowing, it's talking about a personal knowing, a relational knowing, a covenantal knowing. And so the Bible would have us understand that the key to love is the fact that we are known by God and the fact that we know him. Like that relational knowing, that covenantal relationship between us and God is actually the key that unleashes our love. I mean, certainly that's true when it comes to our love for God, right? We don't love God in order for him to love us. We love God because he has already loved us. God's love always in everyone's life precedes and produces their love for God. I would have no love for God apart from his love for me. And it is only his love for me that sustains in me any measure of love for him, much less a love that is abounding more and more. Like an imperfect illustration of this is just the way that a mother loves a young baby when that young baby comes into her life. This isn't perfect, but you can, you can imagine it for a moment. So that baby is born. Actually, even before that baby is born, that baby is conceived in his mother's womb. And from that moment, that mother loves her baby. And that love increases throughout the months of pregnancy and increases even more when for the very first time she holds that baby in her arms. And she proves that love by the way that she will lay down her life for her child, right? She will go sleepless nights for her child. She will meet every need of her child. She will ask nothing of and expect nothing of her child. She will love that child from the moment it first draws breath. But from the moment it first draws breath, does that baby love its mother? No. I mean, it might have some kind of, like, attachment to his mother. I won't deny that. But does the baby love its mother? No, absolutely not. The baby, he cares about mom for one reason and one reason only. That is because mom can meet his needs. If a cantaloupe could meet its needs as well, the baby would look to the cantaloupe in the same way that it looks to mom. But he looks to mom with some kind of attention because mom can provide for it what it desires, what it needs in order to survive. But over time, as mom continues to selflessly pour love into baby's life, baby begins to trust mom. Baby begins to appreciate mom. Baby begins to love mom. And because mom's love has preceded its love and has put no conditions on its love at all, mom's love over time produces love in the baby for the mother. In the same way, like our Heavenly Father, He loved us before the foundation of the earth. The Bible says that God's love for His people emerged in eternity past. It's not in any way contingent on how we've loved God back. It's not in any way contingent on the things that we do for God. It's not in any way contingent on the fact that we've like earned or deserved that love in some way. No, He just loves us because He loves us. In His heart of hearts, He has set His favor and affection on us that precedes our love in every conceivable way. And over time, 
it produces our love for him. Because we, as we come to grasp the full measure of and extent of his love for us, our hearts are turned towards him and we come to love him. And as we've already seen, as we love him vertically, that love extends to other people in our lives. And so really knowledge not knowing facts about God, but covenantal, relational knowledge of God. The Bible would tell us that that is the very key to loving God. It's only when we understand the degree to which God has known us and loved us despite whatever he sees in us that it's possible for us to love God in return. Knowing and loving They are inextricably linked to one another. And unless we know God, we can't love God or other people. Not truly. Not genuinely. Because it's God's love for us that produces our love for him and for others. For our love to abound more and more and more, it must abound with knowledge and discernment of who God is. And so Paul prays for that very thing. But as beautiful as that is, he doesn't stop there. He keeps praying in verse 10. So that, he says, so here's why he's been praying that the Philippians would grow in love with knowledge. So that, purpose, you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. I wonder what you would say has been the most significant day of your life so far. Right, if you could look back on every every single day of your life that you've lived on the face of the earth until today, like what would you say is the most significant day of your life? And then if you could like somehow fast forward to the end of your life and look back over your whole entire life, like maybe your answer would change. Like what, what would you say at the end of your life is the most significant day of your life? Now I tell you this morning that the Bible tells us that the most significant day of your life, it's not the day that you were born, it's not the day that you die. Um, it's not the day that you graduate from high school or college. It's not the day that you land your dream job. It's not the day that you meet your spouse. It's not the day that you marry your spouse. It's not the day that your kids come into the world. None of those days are the most significant days of your life. And in fact, the Bible even says that the most significant day of your life is not the day that you make a personal decision for Jesus. The Bible tells us that the most significant day in your life, the most significant day in history, is what Paul is calling here the day of Jesus Christ. This is actually in the first 10 verses of Philippians, the second time that he's mentioned this most significant day in history. He mentioned it back in verse six when he said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That's the most significant day in my life or yours. It's the most significant day in all of history. It's the day when Jesus returns. Not as he came the first time, humbly in a manger as a little baby. It's the day that Jesus returns 
in power and in glory to be the just judge of everything on the face of the earth. It's the day when the dead will rise from their graves and join the living to be seated before the judgment seat of Christ. And it's the day when Jesus will hold all people justly and righteously and perfectly accountable for everything that's ever happened, for everything they've ever said or done or thought or felt. And I pray this morning that you'll spend some time thinking about that day especially if you're with us or you're on this live stream and you don't consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, I pray that you'll spend some time that you'll linger over the idea of the day of Christ. See, right now, because of his kindness, because of his mercy, because of his patience, Jesus is waiting to return. He's waiting for the most significant day in history. And he waits to give us opportunities to turn to him. He waits to give us opportunities to turn from our sin and to trust him in faith. But he won't wait forever. And so there will be a day when he holds all people and all things justly accountable for their sin. And what Paul's praying here is is simply that the Philippians would be prepared for that day. Right? He's praying that they would be ready. Look at what preparedness looks like. He says in verse 10, that you may approve what is excellent. In other words, that you may agree with the Lord about what is excellent, what is praiseworthy, what is beautiful. That you may, like the Lord, say that what is truly beautiful is beautiful. That you may approve what is excellent. He prays secondly in verse 10 that they would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That doesn't mean perfect, by the way. It means sincere. It means genuine. It means true. And so Paul is praying that the Philippians would be ready for the glorious return of Christ and that on that day they would be found true and pure and sincere when Jesus returns and reveals who he truly is. And then at the end of verse 11, Paul tells us, the ultimate end of his prayers for the Philippians. He says that he's prayed all of this, that their love would increase with knowledge, that they may be ready and prepared for Christ to return. All of that to the glory and praise of God. In other words, Paul doesn't pray that the Philippians would grow and show evidence of righteousness and sanctification. He doesn't pray that the Philippians would increase in love and that they would love people with knowledge and discernment. He doesn't pray any of those things so that their reputations would be enhanced. He prays those things so that God's reputation would be enhanced. He doesn't pray those things so that people will look at the Philippians and say, man, these guys are awesome. He prays those things so that people will look at the Philippians and know that God is awesome. He prays that the Philippians would grow in this way so that in their growth they might demonstrate the beauty and majesty and perfection of God. He prays that the Philippians would grow so that God might be known for who he is to the praise and glory of God. So that's Paul's prayer. Not that he's like, prayed these exact words every time for the Philippians, but as he summarizes the way he's been praying for these dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that's how he summarizes that prayer. 
He's praying that they would grow in knowledge, I'm sorry, in love, and that that love would demonstrate itself in knowledge so that they would be ready for Christ to return. And that all of that would glorify and praise God. Now what do we do with that? Like, What do we do with this prayer from Paul this morning? Let me tease out for the last, in the last few moments we have three ways that this prayer can impact the way that we live our lives today and this week and, and this month. First, I believe this, this prayer illustrates the way in which we need to let the gospel motivate our prayers. This prayer illustrates the way in which we need to let the good news that God has set his favor and affection and love upon his people, not because they were good people, but despite the fact that they were sinners, that truth, that news, it needs to motivate and inspire our prayers. And, and this prayer of Paul illustrates that. Here's why I say that. No one would ever naturally pray like this for the Philippians. Right? In order for anyone, including Paul, to like pick up his pen and write this down, to, to pray a prayer like this for the Philippians, something supernatural must have occurred in order to move him to pray at all, but especially to pray a prayer like this. And that something supernatural is the gospel. It's the good news that God has done everything necessary to save us from our sin. And that is good news that should motivate us to pray. Let me explain what I mean. In my experience, like pastoring people, talking with Christians, encouraging Christians, like almost all of us walk through life with a relatively low level guilt over our own prayerlessness. In other words, we kind of all believe that we really ought to be praying more than we are, right? And so when you hear me quote J.I. Packer saying that, you know, the surest evidence of our relationship with God is our prayers. There's kind of like this cringe that happens in every single one of us, myself included. Because if we're honest, when we look at our own prayer lives, we don't really believe that those prayer lives measure up to where they should be. Like we walk through life with some guilt over that, some angst over that, some regret over that. That's just a universal experience. I have yet to meet the Christian who says, man, I pray as much as I should. And I'm talking about even like the most sincere and faithful prayer warriors I know. They don't think they pray as much as they should. And so I just haven't met a Christian who prays as much as they believe they should. If that's you, you're the first one. I don't think that's anybody here. Why is it that we don't pray more? I think at the very root of it, it's because we have failed to grasp how complete and powerful the implications of the gospel are. In particular, we failed to let the gospel define our relationship with God so sufficiently that we enjoy the access that we have to him in prayer. That was kind of a mouthful. Let me, let me illustrate what I mean. My dad spent 20 years in the United States Army. He retired when I was 12 years old as a major. Um, and the majority of the time that I remember him serving in the army, he was like a captain and then a major. So he was, he was an officer. He was up there. He had people who reported to him. He was in charge of some dudes. 
And uh, we spent a lot of my growing up years um, living on military bases in Europe, which was just an awesome experience. Um, I got to meet a lot of people who didn't look like me or think like me or talk like me, which was a really wonderfully forming thing for a young man. Um, and I'm just forever grateful for that. Um, I remember in particular this one military base that we lived on. Um, the military school that I attended was right next door to the base. And most days at the end of the school day, I would get on the bus and ride the bus home with my friends. And some days, uh, my mom would come and pick me up from school in her car and drive me home. But every once in a while, if I was lucky, um, I would, instead of doing either of those things, I would just walk over to my dad's office from the school and I'd sit actually in the reception area outside of his office where his like, secretary or assistant worked. And she always had this little jar of candy that she would give me. And I would just sit there next to her and wait for my dad to get done. And I thought that was super cool because my dad was kind of a big deal, right? He was sort of an important dude. And when people came in to see my dad who's an important dude, that, that made me feel kind of like a big deal. But I remember pretty vividly a few times, my dad, he was in personnel, which meant that if somebody really messed up, like he was the guy they had to come see and be held accountable to, right? And so I remember a couple of times when like the soldier that would come in to see my dad while I was sitting there waiting on him would be like sweating bullets and just absolutely terrified to walk into Major Sharp's office. Now Major Sharp then and now is like five foot nine, 155 pounds. He's not a big dude. And these guys would come in, we were talking about like a, a six foot three, 250 pound ripped Sergeant Major who would be terrified of my father. And he'd be standing there sweating, ready to go in and see Major Sharp. He'd go in, voices would be raised inside the office. He'd come out a few minutes later, still sweating. And the entire time I'm sitting there just eating my dad's secretary's candy. And I'd pop up off the chair and slide into his office between appointments and I'd say, hey dad, what's up? And I just really, in that moment, enjoyed the status that I had in my father's eyes. See, I had access to him, not the way a soldier has to his commanding officer, but the way a son has to a father. And that access meant that I never had to fear going to see my dad, but that I never worried about going to see him. It meant I never swept bullets before I walked into his office, even though like full-grown men clearly did. And in the same way, like if we understood the beauty of our status in Christ, like if that was something that we felt at the level of our hearts, I'm sure that that would move us to pray. Like if we really got, not just in our heads, but in our hearts, the fact that God doesn't receive us as a commanding officer receives his underlings, but as a loving, doting father receives his sons and daughters if we appreciated the beauty of that access, I'm sure we would pray more. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, man, my prayer life is in the tank, I would just send you to the gospel. Just consider the beautiful truth that in Christ, not because of anything that you've done, in fact, before the foundation of the earth, in Christ, God has set his affection and his favor upon you so that he receives you now as a son or as a daughter. And let that just move us to pray. And when we have any time immediate access to the throne room of heaven in Christ, we have any time immediate access to the person who's in charge of it all, how could that not move us to pray? So if we're going to pray like Paul does, 
The gospel has to be the thing that motivates those prayers. It also has to be, here's the second thing, it has to be the thing that shapes our prayers. Like when we, when we do pray, like if we're honest, when we do pray, usually our prayers are fairly limited in their scope. And what I mean by that is that we pray for the people who are closest to us, and most of the time we pray about earthly things or things that have earthly consequences. And so we'll pray for our spouse, we'll pray for our kids if we have them, um, we'll pray for our jobs and our careers, we'll pray about big decisions that are coming up, we'll probably pray for our mortgage and our bank account balance from time to time, we'll pray for good health and physical safety and those kinds of things. And, and don't hear me wrong on this, we should pray for all of those things, right? First Peter tells us that we are to cast all of our anxieties upon the Father, and so we should pray for every one of those things. Those are good prayers. But if the focus of our prayers never extends beyond physical, earthly, temporary things, then our prayers aren't really aligning with the heart of the Father. And as we said before, the surest evidence that we know of the Father is that we'll care most about what he cares most about. We'll pray most about what he prays most about. And so we should let the gospel not just motivate our prayers, but we should even let it shape the priorities of our prayers. And you know you see that just so beautifully in the Apostle Paul. Like if you think about not just this prayer, but every prayer that Paul prays in the Bible, um, first of all, like he's always praying for other people and almost never praying for himself. Somebody corrected me after the first service, reminded me of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where it does seem that Paul is praying there that the Lord would release this like sinful burden that he's been carrying. But that's the only time that I'm aware of that Paul actually prays for himself. He's always praying for other people. And he's not ever praying that God would change anybody's earthly circumstances. He's praying that that God would change people, that he would grow people. And so even here, Philippians, right, Paul's in prison writing this letter. And if that were me, like I'd be praying, God, get me out of this prison, right? I don't deserve to be here. I want to preach your gospel, so release me. And Paul's not praying, God, change my circumstances. He's praying, change the Philippians. Give them more and more love. Help them to love with knowledge and discernment. Prepare them for the day of Christ, all to the praise of your glory. Because Paul's prayers, they're calibrated by eternal things, two eternal things, by the hope of the gospel. And so just let gospel priorities shape your prayers. Like when you pray for your children and for your grandchildren, I mean, yes, pray for their success and their safety in life but pray more for the state of their souls. When you pray for your marriage, I mean, yes, pray that you and your spouse would get along. Yes, pray that you and your spouse would agree. Pray that you and your spouse would resolve whatever conflict you're dealing with. But more than that, pray for your spouse's sanctification. Pray that he or she would grow in their relationship with the Lord and that your marriage would glorify God. When you pray for your future, I mean, it's fine. Pray for your prosperity. Pray for your financial security. But pray more that God would use your life for his own praise and glory. When you pray for yourself, don't just pray that God would change whatever challenging circumstance you're facing. Pray that God would grow you through the challenging circumstance you're facing. See, friends, we know that we know God when we pray most about the things that he cares most about. 
And so we must let the priorities of Jesus shape even our prayers. The third way that we can live differently because of this passage, we we should just let knowing God fuel and sharpen our love for him and for others. I don't want to don't want to neglect that, right? I mean, this passage, it holds up so beautifully that relationship between knowing God and loving God and loving other people. Love increases as knowledge of God increases, which means that if we're struggling to love someone, it's because we don't know God well. If we're struggling to love God, it's because we don't know God well. So if your love is weak, the solution is to know God better. If your love for God is weak, the solution is to know God better. If your love for your spouse is weak, the solution is to know God better. If your love for your neighbor or your coworker or your enemies, if they're weak, the solution is to know God better. And so we must make knowing God the great ambition of our lives Meaning we must become increasingly people of his word. We must increasingly be people who submit ourselves to true, genuine, biblical teaching. We must be people who are committed to biblical community, relationships with other Christians who are gonna tell us the truth about God and encourage us with the gospel. And so I don't know what that means for you. I don't know if that means like regularly gathering in a place like this or dialing into a live stream like this. I don't know if that means like participating in some kind of small group community. We'd be eager to connect you to a life group or a coffee break table or to the forge room on Friday mornings, gentlemen. Like we would love to connect you with people who can tell you the truth about God and his word so that you might know him better. But the key hope for all of us should be that we can say, as Paul says, he's gonna say this in Philippians 3, verse eight. He says, indeed, I count everything, meaning everything in his earthly life, as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And may we treasure knowing Christ above all else, church. It will fuel our love for God and for others. Pray that that might be true of us. God, we pray that our love for you and for others would grow and abound more and more and more. We pray that that love would be rooted in true knowledge of you, that we would would celebrate the beauty of being known by you and of knowing you, and that that knowledge of you might fuel and shape our love for others so that we're able to love and approve what is excellent, so that we'll be pure and blameless and ready for the day of Christ so that on that day we might be filled with the fruit of his righteousness, so that in all things you might be glorified and praised by our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.